And please turn back with me this morning to the Song of Solomon and to that passage that we read from earlier in chapter 4. And our text for this morning is in verse 16. Verse 16, Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. And I want to look at this verse with you this morning. Uh, But before we do so, I think it would be good and worthwhile just to set the context of what we uh, read from verse 8 down to the end of the chapter there. We have to keep in the back of our mind as we do so that this book, the book of the Song of Solomon, is a poetical book. It's a book that is a figurative book. It's a book that concerns David's son and David's son's bride. And while on the surface the book is about Solomon and Solomon's love for his wife and the bride's reciprocated love for Solomon, the ultimate purpose of this book is to reveal the love of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to reveal his love for his people and for his church. And this is what we find particularly here in verses 8 through to 15. This particular part here is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. And he's speaking about his beloved. He's speaking about his church, about his people. And Christ in these verses is declaring his great affection for his bride. And these words here are some of the most remarkable, some of the most comforting words in all of Scripture. They reveal, I think, uh, You could say three things about Christ's love to believers. Firstly, we see something of the devotion that Christ has for the church. Secondly, they reveal something of his inestimable delight in the church. And thirdly, they also show us something of his fervent desire to be with the church. I mean, you just look there, for example, at verse 9. He says, Thou hast ravished my heart. My sister, my spouse, thou hast ravished my heart. Literally, you have stolen my heart. You've unhearted me. You've taken my heart. What a love Christ has for his people. When you think about who it is that he's talking about, he's talking about sinners. He's talking about those who had rejected him. And yet he comes and he says here, thou hast ravished my heart. You've stolen, you've taken my heart. And he loves his people and then in the middle of this this passage here from verses 8 through to 15 as the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking about his people he uses this wonderful picture to describe what the church is like and we find it there in verse 12 he says that this people this bride the one that he loves is a garden he says a garden enclosed is my sister my spouse a spring shut up a fountain sealed. And the picture that he paints here in these verses from verse 12 through to verse 15 is of one of the, these most beautiful oriental gardens. It is an ornate garden. You notice that in verses 13 and 14. It has fruits, it has flowers, it has spices. There are trees in abundance in this garden. It's also an, an enclosed garden. You see that in verse 12. It's walled, it's hedged about for protection. 
so that things can't come in, beasts can't come in. We see it's a watered garden. He's noticed that it has a fountain sealed, a spring shut up in verse 12. It goes on to describe it in verse 15 as a fountain of gardens, a well of living waters and streams from Lebanon. Not only do we see that it's enclosed and it's watered and it's ornate, but we find it's a fruitful garden. It's a garden that is filled, we read there, with pleasant fruits. This is an abundant garden that's overflowing, there's shade so that you might find rest. It's a a beautiful enclosed garden. It's got the smell of spices and fruit. It's, It's flourishing. And we have here one of the richest metaphors in all of God's words to describe God's people. The believer, this morning, you're like a garden. Spurgeon said this, the soul of the believer is the garden of the Lord's. He goes on to say, within it are rare plants, such as yield spices and pleasant fruits. Once it was a wilderness that was overgrown with thorns and briars, but now it's a garden enclosed, an orchard of pomegranates. And believe it this morning, what a picture this is of of you and me this morning. We're like a garden. We were once, weren't we, uncultivated parcels of ground. Ground that yielded only thorns and thistles and briars and weeds. The weeds of sin in our lives. But Christ has taken us for his royal garden. In a sense, the soil has been turned over. It's been cultivated. The weeds of sin have been destroyed and uprooted. Now choice trees have been planted in their place. We have a wall, don't we, surrounding us of God's protection. There is the fountain of living water, the Holy Spirit that runs through our lives, that makes us to flourish. And Christ is the great gardener, the one who keeps and cares for our souls. And so, friends, this morning, this is a wonderful description of you and me if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. See, to Christ, in, in a sense, we're the antitype of Eden, And he cares for us and he loves us. But when we come to verse 16, our our text this morning, we now have the voice of the bride in response to what the Lord Jesus Christ has just said. And this is what the bride says there, Awake, O north wind, and come thou south, blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant And this morning I want us to consider this verse. It's really a prayer from the bride, a prayer to the Lord Jesus Christ, a prayer to the Holy Spirit. It's really a plea for revival. And that's our subject for this morning, a plea for revival. It's a plea that this garden would not lie as it were dormant and just, uh, just to rest as it were, but that this wind would come. And so I want us to consider this verse with you this morning, this plea. And really there's three pleas or three aspects to this plea that I want us to look at with you this morning. And the the first thing that we notice in this plea is a plea for the blowing of the Spirit. A blowing of the Spirit. The verse says, Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Blow. Blow. The bride desires that this north wind and this south wind would come and and blow upon the garden again we have to remember that this is a poetical book it's a figurative book and the wind here is a picture of the holy spirit 
What she's pleading for here is for the energy and for the activity of God, the Holy Spirit, to come. It's a prayer that he would come in reviving power. Now, you remember that throughout Scripture, the Holy Spirit is likened to a wind. It's a very fit emblem to describe what the Spirit is like in his work and in his energy and his activity. We find this picture in a number of places. You remember, for example, the Valley of Dry Bones in Ezekiel 37. Remember when Ezekiel prophesied unto the wind and the wind comes and the dry bones, they are raised up and there is life given to those dry and dead bones. It's a picture, isn't it, of the Spirit giving spiritual life and energy. It's a picture of conversion. The dead raised to life by the Spirit. Or you can think of Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. Remember what happened on the day of Pentecost? The wind, the Holy Spirit is spoken of as a wind. When the Spirit filled the apostles, there was the sound of a mighty rushing wind. Perhaps the most obvious passage is in John chapter 3. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ was talking to Nicodemus and he was explaining to him about the new birth, that you must be born again. And he says there in verse 8, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. You see, in this passage in John chapter 3, the Lord Jesus Christ, he likens the conversion of the soul, the new birth, to the moving and the blowing of the wind. And there's a mystery to the wind, isn't there? We can't tell where the wind begins. We can't tell where the wind ends. We can't catch the wind. We can't see the wind. Of course, we can't make the wind to blow either, can we? But we can see the effects of the wind. And we can hear the sound of the wind. You look out on a, on a breezy day and you see the trees moving and you see things blowing through the air. We see the effects of the winds. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. There's a, a mystery to the third person of the Trinity. He moves and he blows. We cannot always tell where he begins and when he ends. But he blows and he makes his work happen. He takes an unbeliever who's dead in their trespasses and sins and he gives them life. Suddenly they're convicted of their sin, they're sorrowing over their sin, they're repenting of their sin, they're coming to Christ. And sometimes we can't always trace when that began and how it happened, but the Spirit was moving and blowing. And we see life infused, we see growth in spiritual things. It's like watching a tree grow, isn't it? You do you don't notice the imperceptible movements and so it is sometimes with believers they're growing and growing and all of a sudden one day they were this big and now they're this big as it were in spiritual matters because the spirit is moving and blowing and working on their lives the spirit is the author isn't he of regeneration and of sanctification in our lives and here in this verse the church the believer seeks and pleads that the spirit would come and blow come in reviving, life-giving power. Now you'll notice that the first word of this plea, the first word of this supplication is awake. Awake, the bride says, O north wind. The word awake indicates slumber, doesn't it? An inactivity. You think of somebody being asleep when we say awake. Now, this is not the slumbering of the spirit that's being talked about here. The Holy Spirit, of course, is never asleep. He's never inactive. 
But the church, on the other hand, can fall into times of slumbering and inactivity. There can be a deadness, can't there, to the church and to our own souls. And we need, as it were, to be awakened. We need to be revived again. And it's this that the bride is alluding to here in verse 16. The garden's quiet. There's a peace. There's a a deadness. There's a stillness over the garden. And the bride is is unhappy with this, this hush that's come over the garden. The bride, you see, desperately wants activity. And she's praying for a stirring, as it were, from the spirits. And friends, this morning, here is a prayer that we desperately need to pray, isn't it? Here's a prayer that we desperately need for today and for the church today. As we look at the church across our land, in a sense, it's slumbering. There's deadness within it. There's a, a worrying degree of inactivity amongst God's people. I think we saw this so clearly with the pandemic over these last few months. I think I said to you a number of weeks ago, I've been reading a book about the American Civil War and the revival that took place amongst the southern troops in the American Civil War. And when the Civil War broke out, the church was ready to be immobilized and to take the gospel to those troops. It was on its, as it were, on on the balls of its feet, ready to, to take the gospel and to reach people, young men particularly, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was it was active. When we think about the church of Jesus Christ in our land today, and we saw what happened over the past 18 months, the church has recoiled. This was an opportunity. We're the only only people in the world who had a message of hope. We're the only ones who have the gospel. Instead, there's been too much infighting amongst churches and too much recalling and recoiling and retreating when we should have been on the advance. And you see, we need to pray, don't we? We need to pray, oh, awake, oh, north wind. Come, Holy Spirit. That should be our great plea. Blow upon the church in great power. Oh, that the church would know a breath from heaven. Now, you see, the bride could not make the wind to blow. And likewise, we cannot make the Spirit work, but we can pray for him. And don't we desire that the church of Jesus Christ in this land and throughout the world would see and know more of the blowing and the moving and the breathing of the Holy Ghost? Here's a prayer that you could pray. Pray for ministers. Pray for preachers as they preach day by day. Pray that they would be filled with the Spirit. There's a great prayer that you can pray. Pray that they would know more and more of the power of the Holy Ghost. We need more people like Apostle Paul, don't we? Do you remember what he said? He said that his preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And friends, that's what we need today. We need men who are in pulpits, who are preaching with power, who are preaching in demonstration of the Spirit. But isn't this also a prayer that we need to pray personally too? Don't we desire in our own souls, in our own hearts, that we would know more of the Spirit, that we would be filled more and more with the Spirit's power? Don't we long to know more of his influence in our lives? Don't we feel at times there's a a deadness in our souls? There's a slumbering, as it were, in the garden of our hearts? You notice that the bride here in verse 16 actually mentions two kinds of wind. 
She prays for the north winds and she prays for the south wind. Now, here, of course, in the United Kingdom, we think of the north wind as being a, a bitter wind and a cold wind, one that brings the snow and so on. And we think of a south wind as one that brings warmth and pleasantness and so on. Now, uh, it probably isn't quite the same in the context here of a Middle Eastern uh, garden and so on, but the sense is this, that there are two different winds and both are needed. It's true in nature and it's true in the church. The church needs that north wind of, of adversity for reproving, for correcting, for convincing, for disturbing. It needs that. But it also needs that, that south wind, that warm wind for melting and softening and soothing and comforting. It needs both. And we need to pray that God would send what's needed for us as a church and for us as believers. That he would send in, in the right measure the north wind and the south wind to blow. We need to pray for the Spirit to come. So we've seen then this first point, that there was a plea for the blowing of the Spirit. But notice, secondly, there's a plea for the flowing of her spices. A plea for the flowing of her spices. He says, Awake, O north wind, and come thou south. Blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. You see, we can't ask the question, well, why does the bride want the Spirit to blow? What is it that the Spirit is going to do? Well, the answer's here. It's that the spices would then flow out of the plants that are in the garden. The bride, you see, wants this wind to blow through the garden, blow through the flowers so that their scent, their fragrance would come out. She wants this clearing north wind and she wants this south wind to diffuse this smell of spices in the air. Where I used to live down in Woking, there was a big park by our house and they had a, a sensory garden for blind people. And it was a garden that was filled with all sorts of plants that had particular smells so that they could go in and enjoy the smells of the garden. And it's the same picture that's being drawn here. Imagine walking into a garden with your eyes closed so you can't see the flowers, you can't actually see what's in the garden, but you can smell everything. And the, and the Holy Spirit is being prayed for so that these, these spices would then flow out so there would be this wonderful smell and, and fragrance. Remember that this garden we read was filled with all the chief spices. There's frankincense, there's myrrh, there's aloes, there's, there's camphire, spikenard, saffron and so on. These are, these are some of the most valuable plants in all the world. Do you know saffron is the most expensive thing by weight? More expensive even than gold. You know when you weigh saffron out, you have to do so with tweezers. Even in today's uh, money, you have to pay £10 for just one gram of saffron. That's how expensive it is. And this garden, you see, is filled with the most precious, the most expensive, the most fragrant spices of the East. And the bride longs that the, the wind would blow these spices into the air so that their fragrance could be smelt and enjoyed. You see, it's not enough for her that the flowers are just in bloom. It's not enough for her that there's just spices planted, but she wants to know the fragrance, that fragrance that's locked up within the flower. And she wants them to be enjoyed. And again, remember, we're dealing here with a poetical book. We're dealing with poetical language and figures here. 
This is seeking to display a particular truth. If the garden represents the church of Christ and the wind represents the Holy Spirit, then the spices here are a picture to us of our graces. The graces that are in the church and in the individual believer. And there are wonderful graces within the, within the heart of the believer that's been planted in our souls. You take, for example, repentance, you take patience, you take godliness. In actual fact, you go to that passage that we read from in Galatians chapter 5. They're listed there as the fruit of the spirits. All those different things that are mentioned there, love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. These are these, these graces that have been planted within the heart of a believer. And the bride longs that these things would, would not lie dormant and, and shut up and locked, as it were, within the petals. But they would be manifest for all to enjoy. You see, a perfume's no good if it's kept inside a bottle, is it? And the graces of the soul must be active if they're to be of any benefit and of any use. See, when we pray for the Spirit to blow, it's not so that we can sit back and do nothing. But it's so that our graces might be activated, that they may flow and be evident to those around us. And you see, you can go through these different parts of the uh, fruit of the Spirit in Galatians and you can make them an individual prayer. Take, for example, the first one, love. You can come and when you pray, you can say, Lord, blow so that my love might flow, my love for thee, that I might have a greater love for the one who loved me and died for me. Lord, I pray that I would love those who are lost in their sin, who are unsaved. I pray that I'd love more and more my family, that I'd love my wife and my children and, and those around me, that I'd have a greater compassion for those around me. May I love each one and desire those particularly who are outside of Christ to know the love of Christ. And then you can come to joy. Lord, I pray that this would be true of me just as it was of the psalmist, that I would be joyful in the Lord, that I'd rejoice in my salvation. Father, we could pray, help me to be joyful, make a joyful noise, he says, unto the rock of our salvation. We can pray, help me to have joy in the wondrous work of Christ. Help me to have a greater joy as I go about my daily life, as I'm at work, as I'm at home. Help me to draw as it, joy, as it were, out of the wells of salvation. Isn't this what we need, that we would serve the Lord with more joyfulness? Remember what Nehemiah said, may the joy of the Lord indeed be my strength, he says. May I have a Christian joy wherever I am. We might take any of these graces that are mentioned there, long-suffering, gentleness and so on, and we can pray for them, pray that these graces would be evident to those around us. And friends, this morning, isn't this something that we desire and long for, that we would exercise more of these graces in our lives, that our lives would be more fragrant and sweet to those who meet us. As I said before, there's nothing worse than meeting a grumpy Christian, a sour Christian. Paul tells us instead to abound in every grace. In other words, let your fragrance be revealed to everyone. And of course we can ask ourselves, well, where do these graces come from? They come from Christ himself, don't they? Do you remember Christ is the one whose garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia? He's the one in chapter 3. If you go back in Song of Solomon, chapter 3 and verse 6, he's the one who's perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all powders of the merchants. 
You see, all our graces come from our Saviour. You know, I met somebody a number of years a number of years ago who wore an excessive amount of aftershave. It was a very particular brand. It was very strong, and it had a very particular smell. It wasn't an unpleasant smell, but you know, you know these kinds of people who wear excessive amounts of perfume or aftershave and so on. And the thing is, I can no longer. I, whenever I smell that smell, I cannot but think of that person. I can't disassociate the smell from that person. In actual fact, I was walking uh, recently down the street and I smelt that smell and I had to turn around because I thought it was him. And in a sense, isn't that what we are seeking when we, from God, that our, our fragrance would smell and everyone would say, you know, there's that person who is so loving and so joyful and so peaceful and long-suffering and so on. And, and as, it says, as, they, as they smell us, they can't disassociate those things from us. And they see something of Christ in us. They would see these beautiful graces in our lives. They would see our gentleness, our meekness. As it were, they would fill the air even as we walk past them. I wonder, believer, this morning, what do your friends say about you? Do they say, here's someone who's always loving and kind and gracious? Do they say, here's someone who's meek and, and yet always joyful? Or do they always say, oh, there's that impatient, grumpy man again? There's that young lady who always gets so cross quickly or never has a kind word to say about anybody. Now we need to pray, don't we, like here, that our spices would flow, that our graces would be evident to those around us. Well, lastly and very briefly, then notice our third thing here. That is a plea for a showing from the Saviour. We've seen this blowing of the Spirit We've seen this plea for the flowing of the spices, but now there's a plea for the showing from the Saviour. At the end of the verse we read, Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits. You see, in this third part, the bride now pleads for her beloved to come to this garden. Come, as it were, and pick the fruits and eat and be satisfied. The bride wants the beloved to come and show himself and reveal himself to her. You see, it's really a plea for communion and fellowship. It's a plea for the presence of the one that she loves. She wants him to come, she says, into his garden. It's interesting to note there, just in this last part, the, the change. You notice how she's changed the description of the garden. She had previously stated there at the beginning of the verse, my garden, my garden. But now as she comes and she pleads for the beloved to come, she says, come into his garden. Into his garden. You see, she has union with him. Everything that she has is his and vice versa. And this is what it is, isn't it, with the, with the believer and with Christ. We belong to Christ. We are his possession. We're in union with him. What is ours is his, and what is his is ours. You know, when a, when a couple get married and they ex give rings to one another, they exchange vows, don't they, at the same time. And they often say, depending on what particular vows they use, they often say this, I give you this ring as a sign of our marriage. With my body, I honour you. All that I am. I give to you, and all that I have, I share with you. And as the bride of Christ, we are his, and he shares everything with us. We are his garden. It's my garden. It's his garden. He is mine, and I am his. 
And what she says is, is, come, come to your garden. It's yours. You're the gardener. You're the keeper. You're the carer of this garden. Not only do I want the spirit to come and blow so that the, the spices can flow out, but I want you. I want your presence. I want to know more of you. And isn't this what we desire in our lives, believer? That Christ would come. Isn't this what we desire in our services? As we come to worship today, did you not want Christ to be here by his spirit, meeting with us? Walking, as it were, amongst the candlesticks like we read in Revelation. This is what our prayer should be. Do you remember how the Greeks came and they said, Sirs, we would see Jesus. Is that what you prayed this morning when you came to this service? Lord, reveal more of Christ to my heart. Show me something of him. You remember how Peter, James and John on that Mount of Transfiguration. Remember how they lifted up their eyes. And what does it say? They saw no man save Jesus only. There's a prayer that you can pray even for tonight's service. Lord, hide the preacher. Lift up Jesus Christ. May I see more of him. More of the one who loved me and gave himself for me. My friends, this morning... I trust that you would make this your prayer, a prayer for your own soul, a prayer for the church of Jesus Christ today. Pray it earnestly, pray it sincerely. Awake, O north wind, and come thou south, blow upon my garden, that the spices thereof may flow out. Let my beloved come into his garden and eat his pleasant fruits.